We've been on a series for the last couple of months of the life of King David, and in the series so far, every message we've done has been before he was ever actually becoming king, and we're going to pick the story up this week where David is now king. He is king. Saul has uh, passed away. We looked at that a couple weeks ago, and, and we're going to continue going through these stories, and you know, sometimes there's these stories that are just weird, okay, right? Anybody read stories in the Bible, you're like, that's just weird. Why is that in there? And, and every smart preacher knows, you skip those ones, right? Just go on. Um, that would be the smart preachers. And so I'm dumb enough to go, well, let's look at this story. So we, uh, we've been looking at how David was a man after God's own heart. And even though it's a weird and odd and a story for us to wrestle with, um, we're going to look at this man after God's own heart. We're going to see a picture of that. And to do that, we're going to read an entire chapter of a story. And it's from 2 Samuel chapter 6. And because it would just be boring for me to read the whole thing, and it would be probably difficult to have us read the whole thing, I thought we will get two wonderful voices up here to alternate reading the story. So will you welcome back up here my wife Heidi and the former First Lady of Hope Covenant, Sherry Cross. Come on up, ladies. again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. He and all his men set out from Bela of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called the na by name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Aho sons of Abinadab, were guiding the cart with the ark on it. And Aho was walking in front of it. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with songs and with harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God. Because the oxen stumbled... The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died right there beside the ark. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, How can I take the ark of the Lord um, ever how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months. And the Lord blessed him in his entire household. Now King David was told... The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the Ark of God. So David went down and brought up the Ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the Ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all of his might while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. 
As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. And then he gave a loaf of bread and a cake of dates and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women, and all the people went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sights of slave girls of his servant as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from the house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate for the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Thank you, ladies. Thank you. In some church traditions, they would uh, say after the reading of the word, um, and some of you can reply if you know what to say here, uh, this is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. Now, that'd be a weird place to say that, right? Because that is a weird story, right? That is just, what is up with that story? It's, again, a smart preacher would just totally avoid this one because this story raises way more questions than it answers about God, doesn't it? Um, Like, Uzzah dies? Actually, it says, God struck him down. I mean, wow, wow, what is this story telling us about God? Well, I love to see a good play, and this chapter here would make for some really good theater. I think it's basically a two-act play, and that's what we're going to look at this morning, this, this chapter in two acts. And in the first act, I think we could call it uh, Uzzah Dies, and the second act, act two, would be that David dances. But before we get into that, I kind of want to give us a little bit of background on this whole Ark of the Covenant thing that they went to get. So, so a couple of quick flashbacks here to set up the rest of the story. Um, back in the days of David, the central place of worship was the tabernacle. It was kind of like a church in a, in a tent. And under King Saul's reign, worship had been neglected. In fact, one piece of, I guess we could call it, holy furniture had gotten separated from the tabernacle and was captured by the Philistines 30 years before this episode right here. It was a sacred box called the Ark of the Covenant. It was a, it was a symbol of the presence of God. Anybody remember the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark? Right? Yeah, this is what they were looking for, this deal right here. Now Saul, who was king before David, he apparently thought that this box, this ark, was really no big deal. Ah, just leave it with the Philistines. But now that David is the new king and has established his reign and rule in Jerusalem, he wants to bring the ark back to the very center of his city as a reminder to everyone that God is present and God is the one who's to be worshipped as their true king. So this whole episode of bringing the ark back was a massively huge deal, and David's making this statement about his rule and reign deferring to the rule and reign of God. 
Now, if we want to know more about the ark, we rewind to Exodus 25, where we learn a little bit more about God's meticulous instructions in taking care of this ark. And so the ark was a rectangular box about, about four feet long, about two feet high. It was constructed with wood. It was overlaid with pure gold. And inside of this ark were three items. The tablets of stone where God had inscribed the Ten Commandments for Moses. There was a jar of manna from all the years that the children of Israel wandered in the desert. How how God had fed them every day, right? There was a jar of that, the manna. And there was another thing which should be fun to read about sometime. Aaron's rod, uh, which had budded. So the ark had all that stuff in it. And on the outside, it had these four golden rings where you were supposed to put poles, golden poles, to carry the ark, and and the poles were not to be removed from the rings. Those were kind of the instructions. Now, unlike um, Raiders of the Lost Ark, this this ark was not sort of some magic box, and, and the people of Israel weren't thinking that there was, you know, this magic source of power that they could just plug into. Um, what the ark was, it was this, it was a visible reminder of God's presence, and also that God's the one who provides for us. Uh, another thing about the ark here, and this is important, uh, God stated that the ark is only to be handled by the priests, that the poles had to be carried on their shoulders, and the ark was so sacred that no one was to touch it or even look inside of it or they would die, which, by the way, aren't you glad that we don't have any of those kind of things going on these days, right? <clears throat> Thank you, Jesus, for the cross. Now, um, David knew that under King Saul that, that the worship of God had been diminished and, and the people of God had really been ignoring God for a very long time. Their hearts had drifted far away from this authentic, passionate worship. So that's the act one, the story there between verses one and 11. Um, and as we read, David goes and he's going to go get the ark, right? So he goes to get the ark, and, and he could have had a small band of priests that would have gone and got this ark. But he decides he's going to do this big, a huge deal. So he takes 30,000 men, and they go on this mission, and they head to this village where the ark had been collecting dust for the past 30 years. Now, the main character of Act 1 is a priest named Uzzah. He and his brothers were assigned the role of coordinating delivering the ark to Jerusalem. So, again, picture this scene, right? There's this house, it's up on a hill. David's put together this giant celebration. There's masses of people everywhere. This overwhelmed this village. The people are playing instruments, and it is loud. It's about as excited as as anybody could get. And David was more excited than anyone about this big move. So Uzzah and his, his family, his other priests, they had put together uh, a cart, and they put the, the ark on a cart to get down this hill. And then verse 6 says that the oxen stumbled. So Uzzah reaches out to steady the ark so it wouldn't fall. And then, right in the middle of this picture again, giant celebration, a shocking thing happened. God struck Uzzah down. Like the King James Version said, God smote him, right? Smite me, oh mighty smiter. Um, And bang, he dies right there. I mean, could you imagine, seriously, like, that would be as shocking as if Heidi or I died right here on the platform for mishandling the communion elements. Like, if something like that happened, we'd freak out a little bit, right? That would be really confusing, And we're told in the text that the Lord was angry because of Uzzah's irreverent 
act. And so the party is literally over, right? This event stuns everybody there, everyone, including David. And it stuns me too when I read it. It's just like, wow. I mean, think about Uzzah. He probably just reached out reflectively to steady the ark. And we don't quite understand why God killed him. And this story can make God seem really harsh to us. Like a story like this, how do we fit this story, this picture of God who, who, who is kind and gracious? Um, how does it fit with God being slow to anger and rich in love? How do we square all that stuff up? I mean, to me, it seems a little harsh. Like I could see God, you know, disciplining Uzzah, but striking him down? Like, honestly, what's up with that? And the text, it doesn't give us a lot of clues on this one, or to be honest, on a lot of other seemingly bizarre things that God does. Um, Really, let's just be honest and straight here. Lots of times, the Bible raises more questions than it answers, doesn't it? We read it honestly, that's true, I think. Now, the writer Eugene Peterson, he helped me dig a little deeper into this story, this chapter. And so, uh, check out this quote on the screen from his book, Leap over a wall, where he says, Sometimes I think that all religious sites should be posted with signs reading, Beware the God. The places and occasions that people gather to attend God are dangerous. They are glorious places and occasions, true, but they're also dangerous. Danger signs should be conspicuously placed as they are at nuclear power stations. Then he says, religion is the death of some people. The story of Uzzah and David posts the warning and tells the glory. Writer Annie Annie Dillard, she takes it a step further when she writes, why do people in churches seem like cheerful, brainless tourists on a package tour of the absolute? (laughs) Tell us what you really think, Annie, yeah. Um, On the whole, she says, I do not find Christians outside the catacombs sufficiently sensible of the conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. She says, it is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews, for the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. Those are really strong words, and I really wrestled with using those quotes even in there, because I'm a grace guy. Like, uh, the major hallmark of my uh, ministry and what I want to make sure that the people of God understand is the love and compassion and grace of God. But I do think we have to wrestle with this stuff honestly. And for me, this is a reminder that God is not some weak, powerless, detached being, and when we in other churches or here, show up and and forget why we're here and just kind of coast into it. It's so easy for us to forget that God is real, like God is powerful. He's not a weak, powerless, detached being. But so often I forget. (laughs) And I think we, the church at large, we maybe sometimes have forgotten. And the question to ask us would be, are we asleep? Every once in a while, we might want to stop and wonder, has our love grown cold? 
Because, you know, we don't suddenly just grow cold toward God, do we? Like, we don't just wake up one day unable to worship him. I think we just sort of fall asleep. We slowly lose sight of the power of God, of the reality of who he is, until one day we, we, we see him as, a, as an old man who is smiling a toothless grin on the porch, simply nodding at everyone who walks by. He's powerless, impotent, and irrelevant. And, and once we fall asleep to the actual power of who God really is, even if we encounter like a supernatural uh, thing or hear a story where someone gets healed, we just dismiss it, right? Yeah, the power of God. We haven't seen that sort of thing in years. Let's just keep playing church because maybe he doesn't do that thing anymore. See, when the Ark of the Covenant was being moved and, and Uzzah gets himself struck dead. Eugene Peterson guesses that Uzzah's action was probably not just a mistake in the moment. More likely, somewhere along the line, Uzzah had lost track of how real, how powerful God was. Like, he was a priest, but Peterson makes the case that maybe he fell asleep to the fact that God is real, that God is powerful. This story also is a place where we go, oh, wow, God makes it really clear that he expects us to obey his instructions. And, and the covenant that he created in the old covenant, he had laid some things out. And if he had violated those things, he would have violated his own covenant. And in that, there was, for some reason, um, Uzzah using a cart was not what God had uh, laid out in the book of Genesis. That's never how the ark was supposed to be transported. It's just on the shoulders, on poles. Never was it supposed to be touched by human hands, but it looks like Uzzah thought he had a better plan. So he takes a more convenient route. He doesn't respect God's name or instructions. And so even though he was a priest and his life, I guess, would have been devoted to God, maybe his heart was far from God. Now, aren't you glad that we live in the, the New Testament, by the way, just to anyone that's not as familiar with, with Scripture, we, we live in a new covenant, and I'm glad that we live in the new covenant, um, although there's that story of Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts, we, that's a whole other sermon, but, but, but other than that, you know, there's not a lot of smiting that goes on nowadays, right? And Jesus removed those barriers, giving us full access to God, not, not, not according to some ritual that has to be done just right. Not a, it, this isn't something we have to fear anymore, right? So I just want to take that off the table for any of us. But I still think that we can learn from this story of Uzzah, because he was just worn down. He was forgetful. He forgot that God is real. God is powerful, and I think that happens with us in the church, too. We forget. We lose sight of, of reverence and awe and love for God, which, by the way, reverence, reverence and awe and, and, and respect for God does not mean we get all serious and somber, like God's somehow impressed by our serious somberness. I mean, obviously not, because you look at the second half of the story, and David is dancing like a madman, okay? So um, reverence and awe and wonder is not somberness, but we too, we can forget, right? And when we forget, I think it's more like we sort of forget the commands of God or we kind of treat them like they're optional. We shrug him off. We can commit the sin of Uzzah by, by shrugging off God. We stop caring about what God cares about, things like the poor or the alien or the outcast. 
or, or we don't listen anymore for his guidance, and instead we basically manage our own affairs. We, we manage our own things in life, and, and the way even churches run gets taken in a different direction without regard for God. We've got our own tradition. We've got our own rules. Who needs to depend on God or listen for his voice? We can figure this out. I think that's the sin of Uzzah. Or, or maybe... We don't want to mess with the details of obedience. Like, ah, it's all optional. Like they were hauling the ark and, listen, you know, getting the poles out, putting them on the shoulders, that's a lot of work. This is a long distance. I mean, Uzzah might have been like, hey, you know, kind of poles on the shoulders, that's so 1500 B.C. Like, dude, welcome to the thousands. We got ox carts now. Come on. Um, so I can relate to Uzzah. I can relate. I can relate because sometimes I don't want to obey God all the way. I just, I just don't. And recently I'd gotten into some different situations that I had to pay attention to um, where I was hurt or frustrated by some different people. And um, I know this is just me, but my natural tendency is to just kind of stuff those feelings, pretend that time will heal everything, and just, you know, all that hurt and resentment will go away. Um, but if I go down that road, and when I go down that road, I'm not obeying God's instructions, Right? When we have an issue with someone else, Jesus teaches us clearly in Matthew 18 to go to our brother and sister and basically say, ouch, like here's how this is affecting me, right? Jesus says we seek reconciliation on even the smallest infractions so that bitterness doesn't build up and, and create barriers between us and other people. And so if I want to call myself a follower of Jesus, then I need to do what Jesus teaches and not pretend that grace means obedience is optional. And so I stubbornly, I didn't want to, you know, metaphorically go get the poles. It seemed like a lot of hassle these past few weeks. I didn't want to obey God fully on this one. It just seemed hard to address some of these issues. <sighs> but I got to this story and said, okay, I got it. I, <laughs> okay. And so there were a few people that I had to seek out and, and clear the air with. And get some, I was able to get some clarity with one of them. Um, with another, I was able to agree to move forward, and I'm still waiting on a response from another. And by the way, with one of them, I didn't like fully agree. We didn't agree. We just said, hey, you know what? I don't see it your way. You don't see it my way, but let's have this on the table. We'll keep talking about it, which is not fun. It's not easy. But whenever I think that we get to pick and choose our, you know, what to obey or not obey with what Jesus teaches... And what I'll just politely ignore. When we do that, we make the mistake of Uzzah. We won't get struck dead for it, but when we ignore God's way, we will miss out on the fullness that he offers us. Or maybe another way the sin of Uzzah is that, you know, maybe we put God in a box. We're just going to seek God when it's convenient or where we're in trouble. And that's the mistake of Uzzah. God's not a good luck charm to be invoked so things go my way. God is love, and because he's love, he has always been about relationship. That's what he's after. That's what he's after. So it looks differently for each of us. So here's my question to close Act 1 um, for each of us to ponder. When am I most like Uzzah? When are you most like Uzzah? Like, is there a place where I pick and choose which commands to obey and which ones to politely ignore? Or, or have I put God in a box and I just seek him when it's convenient or when I'm in trouble? So just take a moment. 
and reflect in your own heart on that, and then we'll move on in a minute. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgression and wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Thank you for your goodness, O Lord. Amen. Again, to transition this to Act 2, when we pick and choose the commands to obey or to ignore, or when we put God in a box and just go to him when we need something, we make the mistake of Uzzah, and then um, we come back to the story right here, David's parade. gets interrupted by this mistake of Uzzah, and, 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 and David is devastated. Like the whole thing flipped for him on a moment, right? From celebration to frustration. He's angry with God, probably thinking, God, I was trying to do a good thing for you here. Why'd you have to go ruin everything? Right? He's angry with God. And since he was angry with God, God killed him too, right? Oh no, weird. Strange, strange, right? No, see, because David, with a heart alive to God, he knew it was fine to be angry with God. God can handle it. We talked about that last week when we looked at Psalms of, of rage and how rage belongs before God. In fact, it's the only safe place for rage because God can handle it. And he invites us to be real, not to stuff it. So David's man, he goes home and, and he sulks for a few months and the ark stays in the house of another man and back home. I'm thinking David probably had some time to do his homework and he realizes the error of the first plan. So being a man after God's own heart, he gets it and we move now to act two where David dances. And I love this act. Um, this is where David sets up the whole scene. We're going to do this again a few months later and, and determines that the priests are going to do things according to what God designed. So they go back to this village to get the ark. They prepare themselves and they lift it up, this time as instructed. It says they take six steps. Nobody was smote. And they set it down and they celebrate. And verse 14 in this part says that David entered the sequel with every bit as much passion, if not more, than the first time. It says he danced before the Lord with all his might, and there was singing and shouting and the sound of trumpets, because out of his genuine joy in his heart, David danced. And this is such a beautiful picture of David. Um, he's the king, so he's supposed to be the leader and dignified and all that, but, but instead he just lets it rip. And so I stop at that and I go, well, <clears throat> besides the fact that I'm a white European, what keeps me from dancing, right? Yeah. Um, well, even back up a step from that right there, how about worshiping? What keeps us from entering into just even worship sometimes? Maybe for some of us, like, it's because we get fuzzy about why it is that we worship. What do we show up here for on a Sunday and sing these songs to God um, when we could be at home resting on the couch getting ready for the next busy week? Why would God even want our worship? Why does he desire it? C.S. Lewis admitted that one of his early stumbling blocks to coming to faith was all the demands in scriptures to praise God. 
And so Lewis wondered if God kind of craves our worship like a vain woman wants compliments. Gradually, though, he began to understand that worship's not just a command. It's also a natural response. Like, worship is adoration. And Lewis saw that all of our enjoyment in life, all of it spontaneously flows into praise. I mean, think about it. People praise a beautiful day or their favorite coffee, or a person that they love. And then people want others to, hey, check this out, right? Isn't that a beautiful sunset? We want others to join with us. Our praise, says Lewis, completes our enjoyment. And worship is our natural response to the wonder of who God is. See, worship... It's this natural, wired-in-you, heartfelt, genuine, emotional response to the character, the creation, the goodness, the grace of God. Which brings us back to the whole dancing thing, and I know some of you are getting really nervous right now. Um, But we got to talk about David's dance, right? Um, Again, back to Eugene Peterson, here's how he describes the display. He says, David danced. David had access to life that exceeded his capacity to measure or control. He was on the edge of mystery, of glory, so he danced. When we're going about our work responsibly and steadily, we walk. And when we're beside ourselves with love, shaken out of preoccupation with ourselves, we dance. And so David danced. And if David had merely been carrying out his religious duties or conducting a political ceremony, he would have walked in solemn procession before the ark, leading it into Jerusalem with dignity. (laughs) But this was no duty. He was worshiping. He was responding to the living God. Now think about that. Little kids, right? They do this stuff all the time. They haven't been shamed into, you know, proper behavior quite yet. Uh, when my son Noah, good thing he's not here because I forgot to ask permission for this one. So um, when he was a little guy, like three or four years old, he would just break out in this jumping, spinning, happy dance, right? He's like three or four years old. Some nights he'd run around the living room after a bath, just buck naked, singing and dancing, smiling like crazy. Uh, Richard Foster writes that God calls for worship, which involves our whole being. And so easily we forget, I forget that that worship needs to include my body as well as my mind and my spirit. One Hebrew word we translate as worship is to prostrate. That's with an R for you men that just winced, okay? Just prostrate. You don't want to mispronounce that word. Um, But the Bible describes a number of physical postures in connection with worship, including standing, kneeling, clapping, lifting hands, lying prostrate, lifting the head, bowing the head, and dancing. And the idea between all of these postures of worship is for our our outer heart, our physical expression to be consistent with our inner heart, our, our inner expression. So when we're humbled before God, we, we might, um, if we're having a time of confession before him, we might kneel or we might bow before him. That would be an appropriate posture. And by the way, we can do that stuff here at Hope, right? Consider this permission if you've ever wondered. Um, or if we're celebrating. Celebration calls for some kind of 
movement, and this is where folks get real quick to point out, you know, hey, we got a lot of different backgrounds and temperaments, and, and that's true. We want to respect that, and, and by the way, moving in worship, it's not to draw attention to myself or prove that I'm somehow a bigger, better worshiper. Worship's about God. It's not about me. But I want us to consider this story as an invitation to maybe grow, some of us to grow in our physical expression of worship and in freedom. Like, I didn't learn how to dance or be comfortable moving uh, in my upbringing, and I'm a drummer, so I sit and play. I don't, you know, how to move, really, at all with my feet. Um, but I think when we worship, it doesn't matter whether it's dancing or raising hands or something else, what we want to make sure we're not doing is focusing on our image or our reputation and then holding back from worship. Like when I'm new at a church or I'm visiting somewhere, I get real self-conscious about, oh, is it okay for me to wear, raise my hands? You know, are, are they going to think something of me? Are they going to think I'm odd? <clears throat> are they going to think I'm strange? Which, by the way, if I'm speaking there, then they'll know in a minute anyway. But, <laughs> um, Which was what happened with David's wife, Michael. She despises him. And she says he looks undignified and she's got all this sar sarcasm and, and cynicism and she accuses him of, of being vulgar. And, and by the way, <laughs> I don't know how many people have said David danced naked before the Lord. I just, it's not in the text. It said he was wearing a linen ephod. And I don't have one, but I think Brian, you said you've got one, right? Brian's got one. Yep. So uh, if you want to know later, Brian will let you know about the linen ephod. Um, But whether or not he was even in his boxer shorts while he's whirling around dancing, let's not say, hey, let's do that in church. Okay, we're not going to be that church either. So you can dance, but not in your undies. Okay. But his wife was mocking him because he was alive. He was reckless. He was daring. And it was foreign to her. She was worried about what other people thought, which makes me stop and go, well, what about me? Is that what happens to me in worship? Do I stop and get worried about what other people think so it holds me back? Or how about you? See, I think sometimes we're more like David's wife, Michael, when we're concerned more with how other people see us than we are about how our hearts come to God. Like, we'll limit our emotions or our expressions and limit our feelings, really, for God in worship when we go that way. But David makes it clear. <laughs> He says, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than what you saw. I'll become humiliated even in my own eyes. The New Living Translation says it this way. I'm willing to act like a fool in order to show my joy in the Lord. Yes, and I am willing to look even more foolish than this. So, when are you and I more like David. I think it's when we get so filled with gratitude that we feel like we're going to explode if we don't express it. Even for just brief moments, we are willing to let go of image or what other people think and just pour our hearts in worship, enthusiastically into worship, when we can celebrate with joyful abandon. And that's the heart of, of David here. And so worship team, will you come? And we're going to close up by um, worshiping. One, one writer said, I would suggest that worship without any physical expression is limited at best, which is interested in, interesting in seeing or hearing. Um, and you know, some people, when they go to a church and people have their hands raised, uh, they go, ooh, that's like, that's really a charismatic thing, or that's, ooh, that's kind of a new way to worship. 
Well, that's not actually true. Nikki Gumbel says, in fact, all early church worship, all prayer was with hands raised. Like that was the normal form of prayer in the early church. It's this expression of surrender. So the early church would do this all the time. It was an expression of surrender to God that they would raise their hands in surrender to God or they would raise their hands in lifting up God. So, so you actually, when you come into a church where everybody's raising their hands, instead of thinking, oh, wow, this is a new deal, you go, oh, wow, I just went to a very traditional church that does it like the early church, right? Um, and by the way, this is not a should. This is not a have to. We don't have some kind of hierarchy where people who are more expressive in worship are automatically more spiritual. This is not a pressure kind of sermon here. This is an invitation. What does it look like? Here's the question. What's it look like for you and for me to worship God with our minds, our singing, and our physical expressions? Like we could even take a baby step today, right now. So, won't you stand with me? Don't worry, we're not going to make anybody dance. Although Stacy asked if Bruce could give lessons, we aren't going to do that. Just think about what you're comfortable with in worship, even right now. And so, you know, maybe the next, so think about what it would look like to be a little more free. Right? So, so we think about what you're comfortable with. Maybe the next time the Holy Spirit prompts you or moves you in worship, maybe some of you could, like, you know, like, uh, take your hand out of your pocket. That would be a... <laughs> That'd be a step one. How about that? Or maybe you could even uncross your arms like that's step one, right? Um, and some of us might even open our hands in worship and just remember I'm expressing my surrender to God, my openness to God. And my heart, Hope family, is for us to learn to worship with our bodies and our feelings as well as our minds, that we bring our, our voices, our hearts, and maybe even our feet into worshiping. See, worship's not about expression or clapping or kneeling or raising your hands, but God invites us to worship him with our whole being. It's kind of like, what do we have to lose anyway? So, God, I pray that as we enter into this time of worship, even right now, you would help us to get past anything that would keep us from being willing to express ourselves even more for the gratitude we have in our hearts toward you, that, that we could stop uh, giving into our self-consciousness and we point our minds toward you. Thank you, God, that you are good. And we celebrate your love, your grace.